0: Well, it's really nice to be with you again today, so thank you uh, for the invitation to be here. Um, If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 16, Acts 16, and uh, I'll read from verse 11. I've been thinking a little bit about uh, the book of Philippians, and uh, I'm going to sort of do a series on Philippians wherever I... Go one of the things that I desperately miss is as a, as a as a former pastor who now spends my life with students is just preaching through the Bible consecutively, it nearly kills me that I I don't have the opportunity to do that. So wherever I go to speak uh, for the next little bit, I'm going to be just uh, looking at the book of Philippians. So what I want to do today is just kind of set the scene for the background of that, um, Acts chapter 16, and I'll begin to read at Verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. Interesting little detail, just on passing, is the we. That's the first we that we uh, find in the Book of Acts. Up until that, up on up until Acts 16 verse 11, it's it's uh, they, but now it's we. And so whoever wrote this book joined this missionary team in Troas And uh, the story becomes his story from that point onwards Anyway, just a passing little piece of information that I think helps us to uh, realise what's going on So from Troas we put out to sea and we sailed straight to Salamis, And the next day we went to Neapolis from there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, the leading city of that district of Macedonia and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river and we, where we expected to find a place of prayer and we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia a dealer of purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul came, became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized... The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the orders, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. And Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Just a prayer. Lord, we pray as we turn our thoughts to this passage uh, today that you'll help us to... <coughs> block out all of the other things that uh, clamor for our focus and our attention and help us to concentrate on your word. And we pray that you might speak to us from the page of Scripture by your Spirit. We pray that each of us here today will be encouraged and inspired and maybe challenged, Lord. As we leave this morning, as we think about the impact of the gospel in in this city of Philippi, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, this is uh, really towards the beginning, if you will of Paul's second missionary journey. So you'll remember in in Acts 13 the church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas and they became the first Christian missionaries as it were. So they left Antioch and they went to Cyprus and they traveled through Cyprus and then they got a ship and they traveled straight north of Cyprus and traveled up into I, I, I suppose a region known as South Galatia part of a Roman province at that point and they saw a whole lot of churches planted and eventually they returned to Antioch and and uh, there was a bit of a, uh, a dispute between Paul and Peter when they got back to Antioch. Peter was no longer sitting at the same table eating food with Gentile Christians. Um, somehow he had been deceived, or he had been pressurized by a group of people called Judaizers who were imposing all kinds of laws and regulations on new converts and uh, Peter had been influenced by them wrongly and Peter and when Paul came back from that first missionary journey he just took them on face to face in public and the reason it was public was because uh, it, it, it was a public sin and the gospel was at stake and it needed to be absolutely crystal clear and everybody's thinking that what had taken place was fundamentally wrong because Gentiles are converted by the same grace that Jews are converted by and they are brothers and sisters in the family of faith and they should sit side by side at the same table and Paul of course was upset about that the debate was taken to Jerusalem where they hammered it out uh, with the leaders of the church and eventually Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch. They spent the winter in Antioch. And then, of course, the shipping lines were all shut down on the Mediterranean in the winter. But in the springtime, when they opened up again, Paul said to Barnabas, you know, we should launch out again uh, in mission. And uh, Barnabas said, yes, yes, you're right. We should launch out again in mission. And uh, let's take John Mark with us, my cousin John Mark. Uh, He can assist us. And, And again, there was this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over John Mark because on the first missionary journey when they got off the ship, when they left Cyprus, John Mark had said, you know, I I didn't think it was going to be this difficult. I I, I didn't sign up for this kind of hardship. I'm going back to my mum in Jerusalem. And he left them in the lurch during their first missionary journey. So much so that uh, Paul felt, you know, We're not taking him on the second missionary journey, Barnabas. He let us down. We need someone reliable. We're not taking him. And Paul and Barnabas so disagreed that they parted company. And Barnabas uh, took John Mark and traveled to Cyprus. And from that point onwards, the apostle Paul, as as we know him, hooked up with a man called Silas. And together they became another missionary team. So now in the of God, there were two missionary teams. And uh, Paul and Silas had sort of traveled straight north of Antioch and turned around the corner into what we would call Turkey. Uh, they traveled up through Syria and, and then turned left into what we would call Turkey. And they visited those churches that Paul and Barnabas had founded on, the first, on, their, on, on their first missionary journey, encouraged the believers and, and so on on in those churches because it wasn't hit and run evangelism Uh, there was follow-up there was discipleship Paul was concerned that these churches continued to grow and flourish and blossom anyway uh, this is a long introduction isn't it why is it taking so long They, they continued to travel westward sensing the call of God to launch into new areas where the gospel had never been before and they wanted to travel down into Asia where uh, Ephesus was located but the Holy Spirit hindered them from from turning left down towards uh, the Mediterranean again Uh, the Holy Spirit hindered them then they thought well maybe we should travel north up towards the Black Sea but again the Holy Spirit hindered them and they felt compelled to travel westward until they reached this place called Troas that I just uh, read about in Acts 16. Now, I don't know how the Holy Spirit hindered them. I read a very interesting comment just recently that um, it's interesting that Luke, the doctor, joins the missionary treat team in Troas. And, and maybe maybe one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit um, hindered them from going north going south was because Paul was ill and he needed to get some medical help and they had to make a beeline for the coast where they hooked up with Luke and uh, not only was uh, did they meet Luke but uh, it seems that he joined their missionary team whatever the circumstances the truth is I don't know I don't think anyone knows but uh, we, I'll look forward to asking Paul uh, how did the Holy Spirit stop you from going left and right and why did you keep going westwards towards Troas so it was whilst Paul was in Troas that he received this vision of a man in Macedonia one night uh, he received this vision and he saw a man there somehow laboring in the gospel and the man said to him come over and help us and immediately Paul took that as the leading of the Lord and they caught a ship and they left uh, Troas and they traveled kind of uh, northwest and got off the boat at a place called Neapolis and traveled, what is it, 16 kilometers north uh, up over the hills and eventually they arrived arrived in Philippi. Now, Philippi is a really interesting city, it was, it was the site of a former battle, famous battle between forces that were loyal to the Roman Empire and two rebels called Brutus and Cassius. And there was a huge battle uh, outside Philippi and of course the, the forces that were loyal to the Empire were victorious and as a consequence of that Philippi was given the status of a Roman co- colony. So it, it was a nice place to live, Philippi. It, it was a bit like sort of an Edinburgh or, or Glasgow. It wasn't really London, but it was still, they were, it was a nice place to live. There were lots of things happening. And uh, the same laws that governed life in Rome governed life in these, city, the city, these Roman colonies. And, uh, and, and, and this place called Philippi. Now, it's separated from Rome by about 1200 miles, but the the missionaries arrived midweek, so, I don't know, maybe a Wednesday they arrived, and... uh, they, it took them a day or two to find their bearings as you would expect they're, they're just fresh off the boat as it were and uh, they arrive in Philippi they had to find lodgings they had to find where would you, where would you buy food they had to get themselves settled in uh, and, and, and a few days had passed before they began to get around to their, their the, the true nature, the true business in, in, in coming to Philippi and when they got around to it they went down to the riverside on the Sabbath day and it was there that they met a bunch of women and uh, I, I what I want to do is just quickly, if I can, speak about three, the three first members of the, group, of the church at Philippi. The three members who were the first members of the church of Philippi. The first of them was a businesswoman, the second was a slave girl, and the third was a jailer. Those were the three first members, in my opinion, of the church at Philippi. The founding members. And it was on these three individuals coming together that the church began to be built. So first of all, this businesswoman, it seems that there weren't very many Jewish men in Philippi. If there had been 10 Jewish men in Philippi, they would have been forced to start a synagogue. But uh, there's no synagogue in Philippi. There's just a group of women down by a riverside meeting together. So there's no real... Jewish presence in, in, in Philippi and uh, when the missionaries went down on the Sabbath day outside the city by the riverside some of you might have been there, I've never been to Philippi uh, but apparently you can still visit the location where they think the women must have met um, when they got down there there was a group of women meeting reading the reading the Old Testament scrolls and probably singing together and, and probably praying together and it became clear immediately that Paul was a, some kind of a teacher and he would have been a fairly famous individual, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he was once a Pharisee of the Pharisees so uh, to this group of women who were studying about the God of the Old Testament, uh, to have someone like Paul in their midst would have been quite unique so let's hear what he has to say let's get him on so he begins to he's invited to speak to them and and uh he he begins to speak and uh what what we're told about this uh, woman who was kind of leading this group of women is that she her name was Lydia and she's a seller of purple and that she comes from a place called Thyatira which is just further down the coast and uh, she has come, it would appear, to Philippi to further her trade as a seller of purple. So she dyed garments purple, picked up purple dye, whatever she picked that up from. And uh, she dyed garments purple and sold these garments. That's what she did as a, for a living. And, of course, Philippi was a great place to come to, uh, to sell purple cloth. Because Roman colonies were populated with retired army veterans people who had fought in the legions people who had commanded uh, you know whole platoons or or uh, uh, whole whole groups of soldiers and uh, who really thought they were quite amazing who wanted everyone else to know that they were amazing. Who would have loved to have dressed in purple garments. Uh, because purple was a sign of power and authority. It was the symbol of power and authority. The color of it. So retired army generals who had fought in the legions and kept the, the picks out of England and so on. They, they would have been delighted to wear purple. Just thrilled to wear purple. So. Lydia was onto a good thing here. She was a smart lady and she was making a fortune it would appear. Um, her house was big enough to provide hospitality for all of the missionaries. And we know at this stage that there was Paul. We know that there was Silas. We know that there was Timothy because they had picked him up in Lystra. And we know that there was Luke. So there's now four missionaries. Lydia's house is big enough to provide accommodation for all of these people including her own household so this is a rich lady seller of purple business lady and she's rich but riches aren't everything are they sometimes people think if only I was a little richer I'd be a little happier a little bit more content I'd have everything that I needed I just need a little bit more and no matter how much people get everybody seems to think if I just had a little bit more I'd be so much better off John Lennon, who made millions through his career with the Beatles and also through the business genius of his wife, Yoko Ono, said on one occasion in an interview with the Rolling Stone magazine just before he was assassinated. He said, I can never remember a time in my life when I was without sadness. can never remember a time in my life when I was without sadness. Robert Maxwell said on one occasion i climbed to the top of the ladder financially only to discover when i got there there was nothing there nothing there and one thing that money cannot buy you acceptance with god one thing that money cannot buy you eternal security the hope of heaven money can buy you that. And Lydia knew that. She was rich, but she knew that money had its limitations. So the second thing we want to notice about her is not only was she rich, but she was religious. Lydia, it seems, was not a Jew, but she did believe in the God of the Old Testament. Not just any God. She believed in Yahweh, the God, or Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. She's probably been into it Influenced by the Jewish community in her hometown of Thyatira, which is just kind of further down the coast. And now she's moved to Philippi. She had lots of reasons just to leave her religious influence and interests behind. But now she moved to Philippi and she hasn't left them behind. She's gathered up a group of women and and they're down by the riverside and they're thinking about the Bible. And they're talking to this God, the God of the Bible, because Lydia knows that although she's rich, there's still something missing in her life. There's still an emptiness, there's still a void that somehow can only be filled spiritually. And she's down by the riverside uh, studying with this group of women. And I admire Lydia for that because, you know, a businesswoman, she's got one day off a week, maybe Sabbath day. She could be checking her emails. She could be updating Facebook, sending a few Instagrams, connecting with some friends, just lounging around a little. But no, no, she's... Down by the riverside. Because she's looking for something that's still missing in her life. It's interesting that she is religious. For sure she's religious. She's studying the Bible. But she doesn't know anything about Jesus. She's never heard about Jesus. She has never heard the gospel. And her heart is still closed towards the gospel. Because the Bible says that... In Acts chapter 16 that God had to open her heart, which means that her heart was still closed to the gospel. So although she was religious, she wasn't a Christian and she hadn't come to know Jesus and the forgiveness that he can provide. And that's possible, you know, it's possible to be religious and not truly a Christian. John Wesley, I'm sure you maybe heard that name before, John Wesley. He went out as a missionary to to Georgia, uh, to Savannah actually. And and one day in his journal he wrote these words I went out to save the Indians, but who, O God, will save me? And it wasn't until he came back to London and was sitting in a meeting in Aldersgate Street listening to somebody read the preface of Luther's commentary to Romans that his heart was strangely warmed and he understood the gospel. And maybe you're a bit like that. Maybe, maybe you do attend church and maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you need to come to know Jesus. Well, here's the third thing about Lydia. She's responsive. She's responsive. That Sabbath morning or afternoon the missionaries arrive, Paul takes them on a tour of the Old Testament. I don't know what he spoke about because we're not told. But I have a sneaking suspicion he took them on a tour of the Old Testament. Starting with Genesis 3.15, how God promised that he would send someone to bruise, to crush the head of the serpent. I'm sure he took them through the the story of the Exodus and the Passover lamb. And how if the lamb was sprinkled on the doorposts, the angel of death wouldn't enter those homes. Oh, looking forward to another substitute would lay down his life so that God's judgment wouldn't enter the person's life to whom the blood has been applied. I'm sure he took them on the old te- through the Old Testament sacrificial system. How something perfect was taking the place of something that was flawed. So that the odd thing could go free. I'm sure he took them through the prophets. And Isaiah 53 was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. I'm sure he took them through the Old Testament and said it's all pointing towards somebody. And the somebody is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Who died on a cross in our place so that we could be forgiven. He just explained the gospel to them. And what is amazing is this. I mean, this is the first time that Lydia has heard the gospel. She's never heard it before, ever. I mean, you can't expect too much, can you? The first time someone hears the gospel. I mean, really, could you expect a response? The first time this woman ever heard the gospel, she embraced it with all of her heart. It says that God opened her heart. Now, now, I I would have a sneaking suspicion if we were talking to Lydia, she would say, and we said to her, how did you become a Christian? I guarantee you that she would say, well, a group of missionaries came to my town. They explained the gospel to me and I believed what they said. But, But Luke telling a story from God's perspective says, oh, but behind the scenes, let's just remind you God was at work. God opened her heart. God opened her hard, closed heart. And made her responsive. And There was always two sides to the story. But from a human perspective, she embraced the Savior. How many times do people need to hear the gospel before they will embrace it? How many times do you need to hear the gospel before you embrace it? Well, here's the second thing. Not only did she respond in faith, but she also responded in baptism. It says that Lydia and her whole household were baptized. Now, I assume that she was baptized like everyone else in the New Testament. Matthew 3 talks about Jesus going down into the water and coming up out of the water. Acts 8 talks about the Ethiopian going down into the water and coming up out of the water. The The word baptizo, Greek word baptizo, means to be immersed. So I assume that she was immersed down there in the river where they were. And we're told that Lydia's whole household was baptized, which is really interesting. Um, there's no mention of Lydia's husband here, uh, if you notice that. That's unusual. Because usually a woman, uh, this, is, this is just a fact. This is not, uh, I'm not in any way sexist. or This is just a fact that in Bible times, a, a woman would have been uh, known by her husband who was, w- would have been viewed as the head of the family. But there's no mention of a husband. And there's no mention of a man in this story at all. And I think the most plausible suggestion is that Lydia was an unmarried businesswoman who had a number of people who lived with her. They were her household and that they too had come to believe in the gospel. Probably some of, most of them down at the river studying the scriptures with her. You can make of that what you will, but Lydia was uh, converted and she was baptised. Um, and it's a delight, isn't it, to see your whole household converted and and, and come to faith. Here's the second thing, quickly. I I, I is the slave girl. Um, I want I want you to think about the slave girl. So Paul is now coming and going from this place of worship, and and uh, he meets the slave girl. And uh, she, a couple of things about her. First of all, I want you to think about her demon possession. She she uh, cries out in, in, in a loud voice. She cries out, these men are servants of the Most High God. But she's demon possessed. She's demon possessed, this girl. And uh, she's being abused by men who are controlling her and making money from her. See, we think... We think there's something new. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same stuff in different clothing. Here's a poor, vulnerable girl being abused by others see an opportunity to make money from her. And she's got some kind of clairvoyant abilities, ability to predict the future. Now, I want to tell you this. God is the only one who knows the end from the beginning. But Satan does have... Uh, does have some kind of knowledge beyond that of ours and sees things that we don't see and on the basis of that can make very accurate predictions about the future. Somehow this girl was able to tell the future for people. I I don't know how that all worked. What I do know is that this was not of God and it was something that Christians should have kept away from, run a hundred miles from. The other thing that strikes me about this is, is that it's not in our English Bibles, but if you, if you were reading the Greek text, it, you'd, you'd notice that it says she was possessed of a python spirit, which I find really interesting. And it probably is linked to some sort of Greek mythology, and I'm not going to go into that, but I just find that really interesting, because a python is a constrictor. It wraps itself around its victim, doesn't, doesn't kill it, but does crush it, and eventually eats it. And, and what struck me about this is that, well, what an accurate picture of what Satan was doing to this girl. Crushing her, and abusing her, and breaking her, and destroying her. And what I've noticed is that the devil is an expert in destruction. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, look at what he did to the relationship between a husband and wife. It was that woman that you gave me. She caused me to eat. the f- Look at what it did to the relationship between two brothers. Oh, so you'll accept his sacrifice and not mine? Well, I'll show him. He goes out and slaughters him. And ever since the fall, it's been destruction. You see it on almost every front. I've probably told you this before, but my grandfather was a drunk on the streets of Edinburgh, homeless, during the latter part of his life. And tried on so many occasions to break free and could never break free from his alcohol addiction. And I, no matter where I go and no matter what community I, I get an opportunity to speak in, I find that there is brokenness just everywhere. And, and the reason that there is brokenness just everywhere is because the devil specializes in destroying lives. That's what he specializes in. It's written into his DNA. He is destructive. He's been destructive from the beginning. And here's a poor girl and she's demon-possessed. But the second thing is she's not only demon-possessed, she's also delivered. She's crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, she cries. Very interesting that somebody demon-possessed would identify these two or three or four missionaries as the servants of God. I, I don't know why she would do that. I don't know why the devils would... The demons would prompt her to do that. Maybe they wanted to falsely create a a kind of uh, impression of alliance with Jesus. Somehow maybe put people off believing in Jesus. The truth is I don't know the answer to that question. But Paul listened to this girl for a number of days until he got to a point where he was completely frustrated. And then eventually he spoke to the demon within her and he said in the name of Jesus Christ come out of her. And she was set free. He didn't do it in his own name. He did it in the name of Jesus. The strong name of Jesus. Because... You know, Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the one who demonstrated that even the demons need to be subject to his authority in the Gospels. And he wasn't operating in his own power. He's working in Jesus' name and in Jesus' power. And this girl was set free. What a great lesson for the church at Philippi. Two things that really struck me about this. The first thing is that... The first convert of the church was a businesswoman. And it seems to me almost a rich businesswoman who had a big fancy house. But almost purposeful, I think, on God's behalf that the second member of the church was a poor, abused slave girl. Because God wanted the church of Philippi to know that it's not just for one socioeconomic group. The church is for everyone. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, whether you're rich or poor, the thing that unites us is what Christ has done for us. Not whether we're rich or poor. We're united around the cross. We're united around the gospel. And these two women, one of them rich, one of them an abused slave girl, become one in Christ as Christ intervenes in their lives. And that's the miracle of the church, isn't it? That I could sit down with aristocracy, and and they would have to view me as their brother, even even though I'm just a a little boy from a housing estate a little bit further east of here. If they're Christians, they'd have to view me as their brother. Because we have the same Father, we have the same Savior, and we have embraced the same salvation, and we have been made right with God through the same cross. That's a lesson, I think, for the church at Philippi. The other lesson for the church at Philippi, the future generations, as they would hear this lady's testimony, is that no matter how deep sin goes, God's grace can always go deeper. And and that is true in this servant girl's life. No matter what kind of a hold Satan had on her, God could set her free. God could revolutionize her life. And I want to encourage you as you think about, uh, you know, reaching out with the gospel and sometimes feeling, Oh, this is such an impossible task. It's never impossible because no matter how deep it goes, God's grace can go deeper still. Lastly then, uh, there's the prison warden. A couple of things about this prison warden. He, is, he has a couple of singing prisoners in his custody. Uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, Paul and Silas rather have been uh, the, the men who were making money from the servant girl realized that they're no longer going to be able to make money from her and abuse her in the way that they had been abusing her and expo- exploiting her so they decided we better we're not, going to take, we're not going to lie down and just take this we're going to put up a fight and, and they got the authorities against Paul and Paul and Silas are thrown into prison beaten actually 49 lashes of a Roman rod beaten Four, 39 times and, and now they're thrown into prison now, and they're singing at midnight they're praying and they're singing now think about that for one minute His back must have been like a a field of jelly. I think being beaten, 39 wallops of a Roman rod on your back. I mean, ever open a a tin of Vaseline and look at the top of it? That's what his back must have looked like. And what about the whole system being in shock? And what about, if if skin was broken, what about things like fever breaking in? And not to mention soreness. Yet here he is in prison, along with his colleague Silas, and they're singing for all their worth. It's easy to sing when you can read the notes, isn't it? Easy to sing in daylight, but says Spurgeon, only a skillful singer can sing when there is not even a ray of light. But why are these men singing? I'll tell you why I think they're singing. Because they've got something to sing about. That external circumstances cannot change. No matter what circumstances they find themselves in, there are things that they have to sing about that will never change. They're right with God. Their sins, though they were many, have all been washed away. Isn't that something to sing about? They know that they are in the center of God's will, doing God's work, even though they've been beaten. They know that they are trying to do what God wants them to do. There are so many things for them to sing about. Even though they are in difficult circumstances, they realize that God has still been good to them. It's a bit like in 1873 when... uh, Mrs. Spafford and her three daughters took leave of her husband in the States. New York, I think it was, they left. And they set board a steamer and they traveled to Europe. And just as they were approaching uh, France, I think they, they collided with another ship and the ship that they were on sank and Mrs. Spafford gathered her three daughters around her and prayed with them as the ship was going down and then they were lunged into the sea and she never saw her three girls again, ever they were never recovered He made it safely but they were lost at sea Spafford hearing those words the news immediately went to be with his wife and you can imagine them meeting in France can you, can you imagine them meeting in France? And just trying somehow to find solace and comfort in each other and in the Lord. And in the aftermath of that tragedy, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's what's happening in the prison, I think. It's not to say it wasn't difficult it was difficult but they had something to sing about nevertheless the second thing is not only did this jailer have singing prisoners but the prison was shaken to its very foundations at midnight there was an earthquake and uh, the prison was shaken to its foundations and prison doors are thrown open and the prisoners are now free to walk out and, and go free and uh, of course the the, the the warden, the jailer is, is is concerned about this state of play and he wants to know if, if they're still there and he draws his sword and he's going to kill himself and we'll come back to that in a minute or two but doesn't God often shake people's world to its very foundations to get their attention? Very often he does that. I, I remember speaking at a funeral of a of a gentleman that died in one of the churches I served, 42 years of age he was and uh, he died of a heart attack and left a wife and two little boys and there was a lady at at his funeral service next door neighbour and uh, I could tell that she was shocked at the death of someone so young and I watched her in the church service as the tears rolled down her face and that evening she went home and she said her husband saw her sitting they were watching the television together, saw her watching the television, and said husband, who's not a Christian, said, What's wrong with you? And she says, I'm a terrible sinner, and I need to get right with God. And he says, Well no, you're not the sinner I'm the sinner, not you. I'm the sinner. And he was right, he was a sinner. But she went upstairs and put her faith and trust in Christ and became a Christian. God had shaken her world to its foundations to get her attention. And that's what God's doing here. Finally then, just the, the, the saving of this prison warden. The saving of this prison warden. He, uh, he's going to kill himself because he knows that he'll be publicly humiliated. He was told specifically, keep these prisoners safe. He put them in the inner section of the prison. He put them in, in stocks to make sure that they would be safe. But if they had gone, he will be publicly humili- humiliated by the authorities within the city. He doesn't want that, and he's going to take his own life. And then Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And then he comes in and he says to them, what must I do to be saved? He said to Paul in silence. What? What do I have to do to become a Christian? And they they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't say, go to church every Sunday for the rest of your life. Or keep these 25 rules. They said, Jesus is your answer. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe that Jesus died on that cross for your sin. You've got to... Make Jesus your Lord and begin to follow him. You, you want to get to heaven? If you want to become a Christian, then you've got to come to know Jesus because Jesus is the answer. And that night he became a Christian and took these prisoners home and fed them and washed their wounds. And that night his whole family and he came to faith in Christ and were baptized. So I find that really interesting too that they, these people didn't wait for you know th- five years or ten years before they were baptized they nailed their colors to the mast right away we're one of god's people our sins have been washed away we're now new creatures in christ and we the, the life we now live we live by faith in the son of god who loved us and gave himself for us they're baptized right there and then it must have been such a joy for the Philippian jailer don't you think to see his whole family baptised and come to faith and, and be baptised I was telling uh, Bill here my two oldest daughters were baptised last Sunday evening and uh, it's such a precious thing you know see your kids come to know Christ and, and, and go on with God and whatever they do in life and they all seem to be doing fine that's the most important thing for me That when we get to the other side, the circle won't be unbroken. And that each of us will be there. That each of them will be there. And we'll be there as a family. That's what I pray for more than anything else as a father. That God will keep his hand upon my children for good spiritually. I don't care if they're doctors or engineers. What I care about, passionately care about, is that they come to know Jesus. Well, Three lady, three members of a church. One of them was a successful businesswoman. One of them was an abused, exploited slave girl, and one of them was a rough and tumble jailer who would give you a bunch of fives as quick as look at you. But God changed them and united them in the gospel, and they became the members of the church, first members of the church at Philippi, and the church grew from here. And there's a place for you in the church of God. I don't care where you came from. I don't care anything about your background. If God has intervened in your life, you're as valuable and as important in this church as anyone else. And God loves you as much as He loves anyone else. Did you know that God couldn't love you more than He currently loves you? And you couldn't be more accepted than you are currently accepted if you are accepted in Christ. And you have everything that you need in Jesus. And I hope that you will value each other as a church in the way that God wanted these three people to value each other. Thank you so much for listening.